how do we deal with criminals in this country? In fact, really in, in all parts of the world. We have this, this uh, set of systems we call the justice system. And what every justice system has in common by definition is that they are responsible to mete out punishment or justice for breaking the laws of whatever government uh, a citizen happens to live in. The absolute best that our world can offer in regards to this is an impartial application of the law. And I would submit to you that that ideal is never realized. Innocent men and women go to jail. Innocent men are executed. Rich, guilty people somehow manage to avoid the application of justice to their crimes. The influential and the famous commit murders, and they get off scot-free, never having to, to succumb to that ultimate punishment that we have. We call it capital punishment. There's something to realize, though, that even if the best were possible, even if we could have an impartial application of the law in our justice systems, it would still be far less than the ideal living condition or the utopia we might think. Why is that? Because the human response to sin is always going to be tainted and imperfect, lacking something. If justice could be equitably applied, it would still be lacking in its completeness because the people who are applying it are depraved human beings. And we know how we feel about criminals, right? I hope you all feel this way about people who wantonly break the laws of our society. But, but there's a special class of criminal that really gets to us, and that's those who prey on the weak and the helpless. It, it's, it's these crimes that create the most indignation in us, right? The crimes against children. And, and as you look, we have a, a one who's only a couple days old over here, and you imagine somebody committing a crime against that little baby, and it, it, the anger just wells up in you, right? But, so crimes against children, against the elderly, against the people who can't defend themselves, those seem to assault our senses precisely because they're committed against those people we deem to be innocent. And we rightly cry out for the people who commit crimes like that to receive justice. But there's something even worse than that, though. And that is people who commit crimes against the innocent, and those people have every advantage in life. I recently read a book called For the Thrill of It, that details the murder committed by Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb in Chicago back in the 1920s. Those names may sound familiar to you, Leopold and Loeb. This was a terrible crime in which they, they bludgeoned to death a 14-year-old boy. And it was made even worse by a couple of circumstances. One, the reason why they killed this young man was no reason at all. It was for the thrill of it because they wanted to see if they could get away with it. But even more, what, what blew people's minds, what made this crime so heinous was these were young men who had every advantage by the world's standard. They grew up in wealthy families. They were intelligent. One of them boasted of knowing some 23 languages. They had access to the best education. These were young men. They were only 18 and 19, by the way, when they did this. They were, they were children, virtually, themselves. They had every opportunity for success, at least from the world's perspective, and this only served to magnify the heinousness of their crime. Crimes against the innocent by those who have every possible advantage. That's what really gets us. But ultimately, we know this. There is only one true innocent. As we look at that baby, we understand that, that baby was born in sin. As innocent as we think she is, 
there is only one true innocent. Only one being can make truthfully that claim to innocence, and that's God. We know, too, that there was a couple, the first couple of creation, Adam and Eve, who we read about earlier, who had literally every possible advantage, and yet they still chose to willfully disobey God and usher sin into his perfect creation. So what should we expect from a crime committed against the only true innocent, that's God, by this couple with every possible advantage? Our passage for today, which is Genesis 3, verses 21 through 24, addresses this very issue, God's response to the sin of the first couple. Now, before we get to our text, it's necessary to review what's already happened, and, and a lot has already happened before we get to verse 21 of chapter 3. And I say a lot, and that's an understatement, when you realize that the entire universe has happened, has been created by the direct actions of God in Genesis 1. In fact, Genesis 1 and into chapter 2 record this creation, this miraculous creation by God. And it's looking at these events that are going to, they're going to set our minds right and get us properly oriented as we look at our text today. Notice first God's good creation in chapter 1. Chapter 1, God calls his creation good six separate times. In verse 4 of chapter 1, he calls the light good. In verse 10, the dry land and the seas are called good. In verse 12, the plants and the trees are deemed to be good. Verse 18, the sun and the moon, good. Verse 21, the birds, good. And verse 25, the land animals, good. And all of creation together, when, he, when, when Moses, as he's recording this, gets to verse 31, he records that God called all of creation as a whole very good. We also have God's special creation of man. In verse 26 and 28 of chapter 1 and verse 7 of chapter 2, we see that man was made in a special way by God, unlike everything else that he had made up to this point. He was made in the image and the likeness of the creator. He was specially blessed by his creator and given rule over all of the creator order. And then God goes a step further. If that's not enough, in his graciousness, he creates a woman, a wife for the man to be his helper and companion. And if you're here and you, God's blessed you with a wife, you know what an incredible blessing that was that he gave to him. What an incredible gift. And it's worth noting, by the way, that it wasn't until after God created the man that he called his creation very good. We also see in these first two chapters God's careful instructions to the man. He's he's told first in Genesis 2 and verse 15 what his responsibilities are. His responsibilities regarding the garden are that he is to cultivate and to keep it. This is God's positive instruction to the man. This is what he must do. But he also gives one negative command. Of course, almost all of us, if you've ever spent even one day in Sunday school, have heard this one. In Genesis 2.16, God tells the man, and this is my version, by the way. You don't, you're not going to read this in your, any versions you have there. You're in charge here. Take care of what I've made and enjoy it. Do whatever you'd like to do. Just one thing. One thing. That tree over there, see that tree in the middle? That tree means death to you. Do not eat its fruit. Imagine that, just one 
rule. That sounds pretty good to me. Just one rule. One thing they were not allowed to do. So God made his creation. And it was good. He made man completing his creation and it was very good. He gave the man just one job and one rule. And like many times throughout the Old Testament, as we get to the end of chapter 2 and we exit chapter 2, if we try to divorce our minds and not know what's coming next, we leave chapter 2 almost with a a great hope, right? It's so good the way it ends. It's summed up in verse 25 of chapter 2, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. If only the story ended there. But Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7, the first portion of that passage that Omar read for us this morning details how man broke the one rule God had given him. It details that first sin. And there's so much that happens in those seven short verses and more than we can take the time to dig out right now. But just by way of summary, the the woman is deceived and eats the fruit and Adam, who watching the whole time, willfully and purposely takes the fruit and eats as well. The remainder of chapter three is made up of God's interaction with Adam and Eve and his response to their sin. It's in these verses, verses 14 through 19, that God announces his judgment on each of the guilty parties, the serpent, the woman, and the man. And it's in these verses, verses 21 through 24, that we see God's final actions related to the man in the garden. So what can we learn from God's response to sin, particularly the first and unarguably the most heinous sin ever committed. And even as I say the most heinous sin, perhaps you might be thinking, well, no, Ryan, the most heinous sin was the crucifixion of Christ. I would challenge you with this, that the crucifixion never would have had to occur had this sin not been committed. So our passage today is verse 21 through 24 of this chapter, chapter 3. And as we look at these verses, we're going to learn that God's dealing with Adam and Eve in response to their sin highlights three of his essential qualities. God's dealing with Adam and Eve in response to their sin highlights three of his essential qualities. Let's read our passage, Genesis 3, verses 21 through 24. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to share your word. And as, been, as has been prayed uh, multiple occasions already, uh, Lord, I ask you to give me clarity of mind and thought and speech that what I say would be what you would desire to be said, that, I, that what I say would bring clarity to the scriptures and not obscurity. Lord, I also ask for the people who are listening today out here, that we help them to be good listeners and, and hearing what you would have them to hear and applying to their hearts what you would have applied. So Lord, I ask you to be with all of us now as we enter into this study of this passage, that it would be fruitful 
and profitable. In your name we pray, amen. Well, we see first in verse 21, we see God's, that God's immediate response to Adam and Eve's sin highlights his compassion. So after announcing his judgments against the serpent, the man and the woman, what might we expect from God? What action would we expect? Keeping this in mind as we've sort of reviewed up to this, this verse now, we have the one true innocent God whose one rule has been broken by his created couple who had every possible advantage. They have been made good in the likeness of God. They were blessed by direct communion with God. They were given a paradise in which to live and one rule which they defiantly broke. What action would be expected? What would you do if you were God in this case? Start over? Maybe unmake the whole thing? Destroy the sinful man and woman and make some new ones, perhaps? I have to admit, that's probably what I would do. At the very least, we should, we should expect some sort of unceremonious and immediate expulsion from the garden, right? Nothing in between. Just get out. But what do we get instead? We get a response here in verse 21 that highlights the compassion of God. Look at the first part of this verse. It says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife. This was God's immediate response to make clothes for the disobedient couple. Now, if you recall, if you, if you were listening close back in verse 7 of this chapter, there was an earlier abortive attempt at making clothes. Look there if you would at chapter 3 of verse 7. It says, The eyes of them both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. So Adam and Eve became aware that they were naked. Before this, their entire lives were like one giant private bedroom. There was no need for shame. There was no need to hide. But now everything's different. And, and what was their response to their new wisdom that they gained by their disobedience? They had to find something to wear. And there was no Walmart, no Target, no mall. They, they couldn't just go out and buy clothes. Clothes were unheard of, right? They had to do something and so they did their best to take some random fig leaves and sew them together and gir into girdles or loincloths, just enough to cover what was necessary. Imagine with me how crude this attempt must have been. They, they didn't know anything about clothing. They weren't, they weren't seamstresses or clothes. This had to be incredibly crude. They're trying to cover up their sin, and frankly, they're just not that good at it yet. As I was contemplating this, I was contemplating my children when they were very young and when they're just starting to act out their sinful natures. And they're not very good at covering up. So maybe they, they draw with a crayon on a wall and then they, they try to um, you know, sneak a wet rag and wash it off with a wet rag, which is never going to happen on flat paint. And uh, so they're, they're, they're doing their best to cover up. Maybe they move something in front of it if they're particularly ingenious. But they're not that good yet. This was the first sin that was committed. Adam and Eve weren't that good. They're trying to cover up their sin, but this was just their first run at being clothiers. One commentator puts their attempt this way. The fig leaves were pathetic enough, as human expedients tend to be, 
But their instinct was sound, and God confirmed it, for the proper fruit of sin is shame. So they were rightfully ashamed. They were now sinners, but they weren't that good. They, they made this attempt in verse 7, but it wasn't anything like what God did here in verse 21. God's clothing is much different. Now, it's interesting, by the way, that the, the clothing that's made by God, it uses the Hebrew verb for made that involves the creation or the fashioning of one thing out of another. The same word, by the way, is used in Genesis 1-7, where it says that God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And, and that idea is he, is he is manipulating and fashioning the already created order. There's another Hebrew verb for, verb for create. It's the verb that's used in, in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It has the idea, without being overly simplistic here, of creating something out of nothing. We might have expected this kind of creation at this point, right? We're, we're still pretty close to the initial created order, the initial days of creation. We would think that perhaps God would just speak some clothing into existence for the sinful man and woman. But that's not what he did. Instead, we're told that Yahweh God made he fashioned garments out of skin. This involves the fact that he had to kill an animal, skin an animal, and do whatever preparations were necessary to make that skin proper for clothing. He literally made them clothing out of animal skin, or we would call it leather. Is there anything, by the way, to this use of animal skins? Does it perhaps indicate anything in particular? Well, I would say it indicates at least one thing very definitely. And that is that death had to occur to, in order to provide what was necessary for the sinful couple. There had to be death. Now, some commentators press this perhaps a little further than the text seems to allow and say that this skin was the remains of the first animal sacrifice. Well, that, that, may, that may be so. It may not be so. The text doesn't seem to speak to that. But what is clear and what should resound with us, the modern reader especially, as we look back at, the, at this event, that death is always the result of sin, always. And this first sin was certainly not an exception to that rule. I, I want you to see clearly the picture of what's going on here. The God of the universe, the God who created our planet, our galaxy, and the myriad of other galaxies, the entire universe, this God has taken the skin from a dead animal, he's made it suitable for clothing, and now he's sewing up robes for Adam and Eve. It's worthwhile in light of man's first awkward attempt to note, note this, that these were not mere girdles or loincloths as the man and the woman attempted to make, but these are proper clothing. The, the fa same word used here, translated here as garments, is used often or translated often as tunic. It's a word used for Joseph's many-colored tunic. And, and these were the, the, this was a word that was used to describe proper clothing. It's, it's important to notice one last thing in relation to these clothes. There's a little word there for, for Adam and Eve there in verse 21. And that indicate, indicates something important in the Hebrew. It's that these clothes were made in the interest of, they were made for the advantage of this couple, the man and the woman. That, that simply amazes me. As you think about that, does the compassion of the creator start to become clear? It, it seems to me 
as we talk about the fact that this verse shows the compassion of God and how he responded to their sin, that the first part of verse 21 is more than enough to make that clear. But there's more, because not only does God fashion garments of animal skin for the man and the woman, he also clothes them with the garments he has made. Did you notice those three little words at the end of verse 21? It says, and clothed them. That verb that's translated clothed there has two main uses in the Old Testament. Of a, it has one use of, as of a king on, clothing his honored subject. This is, it's used this way in Genesis chapter 41, verse 42, where Pharaoh puts clothes on Joseph to honor him after he's interpreted the dream. It's also used in 1 Samuel 17, 38. That's the event where Saul places his garments, his um, armor onto David as he goes out to prepare to fight Goliath. So that's one use of a king clothing honored subjects. It's also used in Exodus chapter 28 and 29, among other passages, as related to the dressing of priests in their sacred garments. Now what these passages indicate is that the clothing is something that must be done for the one being clothed. In the case of Adam and Eve, this is something that God did for them. Do you see something very clearly here? The man and the woman were so incredibly helpless that they couldn't make proper clothes for themselves. But even more pathetic, they couldn't, they didn't even know how to properly dress themselves in the clothes that God had made. So God in his great compassion not only made clothes for them, he also dressed them in the clothes that he had made. An exchange has taken place here. Did you catch it? God's, God has taken man's ridiculous attempts at clothing himself and exchanged those fig leaves that they used with clothes of his own making. Do you, do you, does a parallel to our situation pop out at you here? The same thing happened again many years later at the cross when Jesus took our sin on himself and gave us his righteousness in place of our own. The first verse of a hymn called, titled His Robes for Mine captures this transaction perfectly. His robes for mine, oh wonderful exchange. Clothed in my sin, Christ suffered neath God's rage. Draped in his righteousness, I'm justified. In Christ I live, for in my place he died. In our sin, we try to approve ourselves before God by putting on whatever righteousness, whatever good works, whatever good things we can muster up. And it's so pitiful in comparison with the clothes of God, with the righteousness of God. But just as God had compassion on Adam and Eve by making them clothes and dressing them in his compassion, God sacrificed his son to be our perfect clothing of righteousness. Perhaps you're here today, and you're not a believer. When you hear the word Christian, it, it's a foreign word to you. I, I want to tell you today that you don't have to keep trying to work your own righteousness out. You don't have to keep trying to make your own clothes. It's been done for you. God will be your righteousness he sent his son to die on a cross to raise from the dead three days later as your substitution. And all you have to do is accept that sacrifice today. Accept him as your Lord and your Savior. And you can stop trying to make your own righteousness. You can stop trying to sew your own clothes out of fig leaves 
and take the, the ready-made clothes that he's tailored just for you. All you have to do is accept his sacrifice and stop trying to make your own righteousness. There's something here, too, that bears mentioning for the believer. If God, the only true innocent, responds in compassion when he is wronged by those who should know better, what should be our response to offensive offenses, those real and perceived offenses that are perpetrated against us by others? Do we recognize that we are not innocent? Do you recognize that you do not deserve to not be sinned against? If we understand this, it changes for the believer everything in our reaction to people who sin against us. As we understand what came before, the intention of verse 21 becomes very clear. God's immediate response to man's sin highlights clearly his compassion for his creation. But that's not all. The chapter doesn't end at verse 21. We see there next in verse 22 that God's understanding of sin's ramifications highlights his wisdom. Now, just to define briefly what wisdom is, I don't want to take anything for granted here. Uh, in, in a book that I read to my children called Big Truths for Young Hearts, which is a phenomenal book by a man named Bruce Ware, he, he describes wisdom this way, and it's a, it's a good description. He says, wisdom takes factual knowledge and puts it to use to figure out how to best solve a problem or how to plan for something that might happen in the future. So when we talk about the fact that God's understanding of sin's ramifications in verse 22 highlights his wisdom, it highlights his ability not just to have a whole bunch of knowledge, but to apply that knowledge in order to solve a problem or plan for the future. It's now, wisdom is knowledge applied. So we see here in verse 22 that God's wisdom is highlighted first by his understanding of how man's character has changed. See, at the beginning of verse 22, he says, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Clearly, this was not intended by God to be a compliment that was directed at the new change in man's character. He wasn't affirming that this was a good thing. Before we look at how the man had changed, let's look, take a look back briefly at how he was initially created. How was he created? What was man's initial state? A few verses in chapter 1 are going to shed some light on the state of man at the beginning of creation. Now you can turn to these. We're not going to take the time to read them. But first, chapter 1 and verse 26, it tells us two things about the man. First of all, he was made in God's image, and second, he was made in God's likeness. Now, clear, what's, what God is clearly not saying here is that man was God. That's clearly not the case. But what we can say at the very least is that man was created distinct from the animals, bearing in some measure God's image and God's likeness. Verse 28, verse 28 of chapter 1 tells us something further, and that is that the state of man was one of being blessed by God. Can you think of anything better than this? Man was not made good in the likeness of God and then simply just left on his own, but he lived every day under the direct blessing and in direct communion with God. Verses 29 through 30 tell us that man was given everything, every plant, every tree, every beast, every bird, everything that moves. He had control over everything. It was all his. 
And we know by inference this, that man was made knowing only good. So this is how he was made, in the image and likeness of God, blessed, having everything, and knowing only good. But now as God understands and says in verse 22, everything has changed and he is now like one of us. Now at first as you read this, it might sound, and it does sound, perhaps like an affirmation of the serpent's statement back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 5. What did he say to Eve? He said, God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, it being the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. But what was the serpent implying here? He was implying that becoming like God would bring ultimate privilege, unknown and unobtainable things. But what actually happened? What does God mean when he says that man has become like one of us? Clearly, he doesn't mean what the serpent implied. Rather, man has become like God, not in quality or nature, but simply in their knowledge and their awareness of good and evil. But even this knowledge is infinitely different from the knowledge that God has of good and evil. God's knowledge of good and evil is a result of his omniscience, his all-knowing nature. But man's knowledge is experiential. It's dirty. It's first-hand knowledge of sin because of personal involvement in sinning. So God's wisdom is on display because of his understanding that this one sin has irreparably corrupted the nature of man. He's not now just a man who has done a bad thing. He has become a bad man. He has become a man characterized by sin. Man experienced sin, and now he knows it firsthand. And he is not at this point, nor will he ever again be the same. God's wisdom is further highlighted by the fact that he knows that man's actions will follow his now broken nature. We see this in the second half of verse 22 where God says, And now he might stretch out his hand to take also from the tree of life and eat forever. Notice how that statement sort of tails off. If you have <coughs> excuse me, an, a New American Standard or an ESV or a, a New King James, you'll notice at the end of that there's this extended hyphen at the end of that verse. That, that sort of indicates that it tails off. It's a little more clear in the Hebrew, and that's why those, that's why those translations put that there. But, but perhaps I can help make it slightly more clear, or maybe clear as mud. The, the word that's translated by the NASB here as he might, as in he might stretch out his hand, is better translated as lest. And you, that's a translation that the English Standard and the King James Version use. It's worth noting that this word, lest, translated here might, it generally indicates in the Hebrew an undesirable consequence. So if we read it with that word lest, lest he stretch out his hand to take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever, we get we get almost get the sense here, or perhaps perhaps you do, get the sense that the consequences of such an action are left and perhaps best so unspoken. The idea that the man would get a hold of the tree of life is unthinkable. God knows that man, in his new sinful nature, his desire for self-preservation, will, will very likely attempt to eat from this tree that produces life-giving fruit. The tree of life is mentioned for the first time back in chapter 2 and verse 9 in connection with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's also interesting that the idea of a, a literal tree of life is found only here in Genesis and in Revelation. 
And without taking a lot of time to discuss this, I have to just say the plain reading here, there's really no reason to understand this as anything other than a tree which bore fruit that would give eternal life. And maybe that sounds fantastic to you. I hope it does. It sounds fantastic to me. And I don't mean like wow, fan, like almost unbelievable. But the, the fact is, it's what the text says. There's no reason to take it any other way. And if I, if I have no problem accepting that God created the world in seven literal days, this doesn't give me a problem either. The fact is, the man would want to get a hold of this tree that would now give him eternal life. Now, can you imagine the horrors that might result for the man and the woman getting a hold of this fruit? The man, in his limited understanding, would probably be rather pleased with that accomplishment. God, however, in his infinite wisdom, knew that horrific things would come to pass if man were to complete such a mission. One commentator put it this way, after he had fallen through sin into the power of death, the fruit which had produced immortality could only do him harm. For immortality in a state of sin is not the eternal life for which God designed man, but endless misery. Can you imagine what a good sinner Adam and Eve would have become had they had access to fruit that would have allowed them to live forever. We become very good at it very quickly. But you can, if you let your imaginations run a little bit, imagine the horrific things that would come to pass. This is not a desirable state to be in. Paul affirms this in Romans 7.24, when after talking about how he doesn't, he does the things he doesn't want to do and the things he wants to do he doesn't do and he, he cries out, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? This is a believer struggling with this. You can imagine living eternally in this struggle. God's wisdom foresaw the eternal misery that would occur, that would be brought on man and he simply could not allow such a thing to happen. Isn't it interesting here so if we talk about the wisdom of God being highlighted that we again see his compassion on display. God shows his love for the man and his wife by refusing them to add to their already heavy burden, the misery of eternal existence in a state of sin. And once again, the good news of Jesus Christ comes to the forefront. In his great wisdom, God has provided the way that you can end your miserable life of sin. He has provided the way by which you don't have to be eternally separated from him in hell. While he denied Adam and Eve the fruit of eternal life that they would have desired, he sent later his son, his one and only son, to live among men, to die an excruciating death of the cross, on the cross. Jesus is the true tree of life, and all you have to do is receive his sacrifice for your sins and accept him as the master of your life. In God's wisdom, he denied access to the tree of life to Adam and Eve. And in his wisdom, he sent the one true tree of life, his son. So we've seen in verse 21 how God's immediate response to Adam and Eve's sin highlighted his compassion. In verse 22, we've seen how God's understanding of sin's ramifications highlights his wisdom. And finally, in verses 23 through 24, we see that God's preparations in light of man's sin highlight his holiness. We need to make sure we first understand what this word holy means. What is meant by this word? The basic idea of holiness is to be set apart, to be distinct. And there really are two elements to a proper understanding of this word as it relates to God. First, God is holy in that he is completely set apart 
from everything else. Some have described him as being completely other. This is pictured in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 22, which describes God as one who sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. The idea is with this aspect of holiness that God is completely removed and upset apart from his creation. He is completely different, holy other. And we don't want to draw too too distinct of a line here. These are not two separate definitions, but they're taken together, they're organic. Secondly, God is morally holy. And this is normally where our minds go when we think about holiness. He is completely set apart and distinct from sin. He could have nothing to do with it. He cannot come near it. He will not approach it. He will not allow it to approach him. This is made clear even by a cursory reading, by the way, of Leviticus. Leviticus makes clear the seriousness of God when it comes to sin. Now as we come to verses 23 and 24, we begin to observe that God's actions are maybe a little bit more of what we would expect. And I don't mean any disrespect by that. But we have, or at least I have, I don't want to put my faults on you. Maybe you don't have this. But I have this one-dimensional image of God many times as one who just smites evil right off. And certainly, that's true, he hates sin. We don't want to negate that. Although the prevailing mood in churches today is quite the opposite, right? God's love and his compassion are so elevated that that we can't even see his holiness anymore. Whatever the case is with you, we just always need to be prepared to have our understanding of God challenged and corrected. So in verse 23 and 24, then, we see that God's holiness is highlighted first by the fact that he removes Adam and Eve from the garden. And there are two different words used in these verses for God's expelling of the man from the garden. First, in verse 23, it says that the Lord God sent him out. And then in verse 24, he drove the man out. Now, hopefully this doesn't give you a problem, but when it says him, it sent him out and sent the man out, we take those as inclusive of the man and the woman. It's not just Adam who's being escorted out. These words here, that God sent him out, that he drove him out, are used in parallel in the Hebrew to, to intensify the action. We see these same words used in parallel in Exodus 6.1, where God says to Moses regarding Pharaoh, under compulsion he will let them go, and under compulsion he will drive them out of his land. Now, it's possible to read verse 23 and think perhaps that they were asked to leave. Uh, Perhaps they were gently escorted off the premises, like somebody who snuck into Disney without a ticket, just sort of escorted out nicely. But this would not be the correct view of what happened or understanding of what happened. One, One man said, they're thrown out, exclamation point. They're thrown out. Sin separates from God. Intimacy with God is replaced by alienation from God. And that whole idea is, is captured. It's, it's, it's really the intensification is shown clearly in the Hebrew with these parallel verbs, sent him and drove them. So the man was being expelled, but from what and to what? He was being expelled from a virtual paradise. Not a virtual paradise. A, he was being expelled from a paradise, the place where everything was good and everything was perfect. He was being expelled, and and this is interesting to me, if not to you, he was being expelled to do the same thing he did in the garden, the same job he had in the garden. This was not a new position that Adam was being given by God. Remember chapter 2 and verse 15, 
the man was given one job, which was what? To cultivate the garden. But something had changed. The passage that Omar read for us, Genesis 3, 17 through 19, tell us that part of the curse was related to the ground. So Adam was being kicked out of the garden to cultivate the ground, but what a difference sin makes. Now rather than the cooperative gardening he had in the Garden of Eden, where everything worked with him, no weeds to worry about, no bugs to eat his, the fruit, everything was in, working in concert as God had ordained it to be, now the ground would be hostile and uncooperative. Now as a side note, and this is free, there's no charge for this, this makes clear that the concept of work is not part of the fall. It was clearly part of the part of the plan of God before the fall ever occurred. So let, that, that's a notion I had until recently. Let me divorce you of that. Work is part of the plan of God. He intends us to do that. What is not part of the initial plan of God is for work to be an uncooperative thing. So we've seen in verses 23 through the beginning of verse 24 how God's holiness is highlighted in his removing of Adam and Eve from the garden. He simply could not be near sin. They had to go. And they had to go now. He started out by showing them compassion. We saw that he made in his making of clothes. He, he understood the ramifications of what they did. And now they have to go. And just to reiterate, this was not them walking out of the garden nicely. They were expelled with prejudice. So not only though is God's holiness shown there and how he removed them from the garden, it's also highlighted by his barring the means of re-entering the garden. Now this, to me, is a very interesting passage. God uses two instruments to block re-entering the garden. First, he places cherubim. You'll see that in verse 24, he stationed cherubim. These are angelic guards, and the noun here is plural. So there were at least two of them, two of these angelic sentries to guard the way, and very likely more than two. In the Hebrew, there's singular, and then there's dual for just two, and then there's a form for plural, which is two or thousand. I would say there are probably many of these angelic sentries stationed here. Now, a full discussion of angelology, you'll be thankful, is outside of the scope of this message. But I want to correct, again, what is perhaps a misconception you may have about these angels. Cherubims, or you might have heard the word cherubs, they were not cute, pudgy, harp-toting babies. There is no such angel in Scripture. To briefly summarize, I would describe them this way. Strange-looking, scary, and very serious angels. These, were not, these are not angels that you want to run into. But I would, I would say the cherubim are not even the oddest part of God's means of barring reentry. He also stationed, you'll see there, the flaming sword. And perhaps you, like me, have this flannel graph picture in your mind of a cutout in a hedge with a, with a kindly but stern angel standing holding a sword that's on fire. But, but I don't think that is what's in view here. God's placed some, some few very serious angels at the entry to the garden, and, and that's scary enough, but he's also placed a flaming sword, not in the hands of the angels. There's nothing in the text that, that I discovered as, through my study that indicates that the angel was holding the sword. This is perhaps understood as a disembodied flaming sword that's literally moving from side to side and whirling around, preventing any approach and cutting to pieces anybody who dares attempt to gain reentry. 
you might be asking, well, how does barring the reentry to the garden highlight God's holiness? Well, the actions taken by God and kicking Adam and Eve out of the garden, they clearly show his holiness. But, but look here at the extraordinary measures God's taken to keep the sinners from getting back into his garden. God's actions and barring reentry are meant to show that sin is irrevocable. There's no going back. Adam and Eve cannot undo their sin, and they must leave this paradise behind forever, never to return. What then are we to make of God's holiness, which is so clearly set against sin? When you think of God's disposition toward the sin of Adam and Eve, does it make you think of his disposition, his feeling towards you and your sin? Do you feel as helpless as Adam and Eve had to have felt at the very moment of being forced out of the garden never to return? We've spent a lot of time talking about God's compassion towards Adam and Eve, and by extension, his compassion towards you and me. And we've seen how God, in his wisdom, understood sin's eternal ramifications. But now, I think we get to the really hard part, his holiness. He hates sin, hates it. And he is opposed to sinners. As a sinner, God's wrath is directed against you. His holiness simply demands that it be that way. So how do you and I respond to this? If hearing about God's holiness and his attitudes and his hatred for sin makes you feel hopeless, good. Why would I say good? Because it's not until you see the awfulness of your sin as it stands in stark contrast to the holiness of God that you can be saved. So, if you feel hopeless, I want to tell you that all is not hopeless. <clears throat> if you're here this morning lost in your sins, there's hope for you. God alluded to this hope in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. This is referred to by theologians as the proto-gospel or first gospel. Speaking to the serpent, God says this in verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. <clears throat> he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This verse is clearly pointing ahead to a time when the serpent and sin would be defeated, would be bruised on the head. Well, I want to tell you that time was a little over 2,000 years ago. Jesus came to earth. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. And he died on a cross bearing your sin and my sin. You can be free. You can have hope. No longer apart from God, but in a relationship with, with him. All, all you have to do is accept his sacrifice and submit your life to him. Maybe you're a believer a follower of Christ, a Christ follower. Well, you know, or you should know, that as Christians, we are called to live holy lives. The command of, Levitica, of God in Leviticus 19.2 to the Israelites, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy, which is reiterated in 1 Peter 1, 15-16, is the same demand he places on us. He places it on the children of Israel, they must be holy, and you and I are commanded. It's not a choice. It's not an option. We must live holy lives. And any discussion of God's holiness should, should bring each of us who claim to be Christ followers to the point of examining 
our manner of life. As we've looked at these verses in Genesis 3, we've learned these three things about God that are a result of his response to the sin of Adam and Eve. We've learned that his immediate response highlights his compassion, that his understanding, his full understanding of sin highlights his wisdom, and that his preparations in light of man's sin highlight his holiness. So we've learned today about who God is, but I would ask, who are you? Are you Leopold and Loeb? Are you a person of spiritual privilege, continuing in a life of sin against God? And I would submit, by the way, as you've heard the gospel presented at least three times now today, that you are Leopold and Loeb if you continue in your sin. You're without excuse. I would say, though, that you were without excuse before you even came in the door. And we know that from Romans 1. We are all without excuse before God. But doubly so now. You've heard the gospel. If you're an unbeliever, you've heard the gospel and, and you are without excuse if you continue in your sin. You are thumbing your nose at God. You are a person now of spiritual privilege, sinning against the one true innocent. Romans 1 makes this clear. You have no excuse for your sin. And God, while he is compassionate, he is compassionate. And he is wise. He is also holy. And he will not, he cannot let your sin go. There's another criminal other than Leopold and Loeb we're talking about, a much more ancient criminal. That's a thief on the cross in Luke 23. He was a criminal who was crucified along with Jesus. Jesus was innocent. This man was not. He deserved to be there. But even he acknowledged Jesus as Lord, and he was made right with God. The greatest news possible today is that the story does not end in Genesis 3:24. God is as good as his word, and the promise that he made in Genesis 3:15, which was reiterated and expanded throughout the Old Testament, found its realization in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's in him alone that there is hope for you if you're an unbeliever today. And it's in him alone that the believer can place his sure hope that God will continue to completion the work that he began. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage that we looked at today. Thank you that you are so compassionate, that you love your creation so much that you would send your son. Thank you that you're wise, always dispensing, Lord, your justice as is best, that you are always working out things to your, to your, for the best through your wisdom. And Lord, we do also thank you that you're holy, that you'll have no part of sin, but that you made a way for us to be made right with you, the way to be right with you. Lord, if there's anybody here that, that has not, turn to you and turn from their sin. We ask that you might begin a work in their heart today. And Lord, for those of us who are followers of you, would you break our hearts over those areas that, that we are not living holy lives? We, we want to be what you want us to be, Lord. So we ask that you would, as you've promised, continue the work in us that you started.